and which is again an encouragement by the, from the Apostle Peter to persecuted Christians who are struggling and also suffering for their faith. And he encourages them to look at their trials in a different light and to focus on Jesus Christ. And so we'll read the context. So we'll read verses, 1 Peter 1, the verses 1 through 9. And this is the Holy Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So far, our scripture reading. Let us know also, sing, praising the Lord for the gifts that he gives us, by singing from hymn 38, stanzas 1 and 4. So the sermon will be particular on the verses 6 through 9. And I'll just read those again with you. In verse 6, Peter continues, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And after the sermon, we'll also speak of the testing, not of gold in this case, but of silver, as it applies to the people of God by singing from Psalm 66, stanzas 4, 5, and 6.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes as we read scripture, we come across these striking paradoxes, these apparent contradictions in scripture that cause us to pause and perhaps think. One example would be Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, where he describes his ministry, and he says that he is treated as sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. And the Christians in Corinth, in this case, could look at Paul's life and see that he had to endure a lot of suffering, a lot of trials. But does Paul want them to focus on that and therefore say that Paul's ministry is characterized by suffering? No, Paul says, yes, there are sufferings and there are sorrows and that causes him grief, but he is always rejoicing. He had, he had Paul himself not written to the, Philadelphia, uh, to the Philippians. Rejoice always. Again I say, rejoice. And it's the same kind of contradiction or paradox we find again in our passage here this morning. And that Peter writes. He's, a writing, he's writing to a letter to Christians that are suffering. Most likely suffering persecution. Can he still encourage them to rejoice and to praise the God that they have their they put their faith in. Yes. Yes, even though they're now grieved, he doesn't deny that they're grieved, he will continue to rejoice with them and praise God for his grace. But if we look at this contradiction or this paradox, the question then is, can we suffer through trials and still have joy at the same time? And if so, how? How can we be grieved and rejoice? At the same time. And we'll have to look at how does Peter encourage the Christians to do both. And while Peter encourages us with a couple of reasons. And our text shows that, which is also the theme, with our hope in Christ we can rejoice while enduring trials. And because, and there's three reasons, trials are temporary, trials refine our faith, and the hope of faith shall not deceive us. So first reason is trials are temporary. Now, verse 6 in our text this afternoon comes right after the verses 3 through 5, in which Peter has revealed just how gracious and how merciful God is. He begins with praising God in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why? Well, in verses 3 through 5, Peter gives a whole bunch of reasons. He, he points them out that through God they have a living hope. They have hope in this life. God is giving them a lasting inheritance that is far beyond anything that we can imagine in verse 3, or in verse 4. And he says in verse 5, God is watching over them and guarding them, those who put their faith in him. So that indeed, these pilgrims, these people that are persecuted, indeed will make it to their inheritance. The Lord had given them such rich blessings, who can but praise and bless the Lord for what he has done. And Peter, he goes on in verse 6. Peter acknowledges in verse 6 that, yes, I know that you are suffering. At the same time, he knows that they also rejoice. He begins with, in this, you rejoice. And yet, at the same time, there are a number of reasons why their joy may be suppressed or stifled. For the letter goes on to mention, very quickly after that, 
Let industry rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The lives of the Christians here are not all joy. Trials are also part of their lives. And the letter goes on to mention persecution a number of times that these Christians had to suffer for their faith. And that's most likely one of the things that Peter is thinking of when he mentions that there are various trials. But notice that Peter doesn't specify the trials. He just mentions various trials. And this leaves us to think of the many trials that can come also to our lives, even if it's not persecution. Persecution is certainly a trial and is one of them, but it's not the only one. And we can think of forms of suffering that we endure also in our lives. That can be a real trial to our faith. Severe diseases and illnesses that break down our body. Depression and other mental struggles that can be a huge trial. Prayers that seem to go unheard. We're losing our jobs, struggling financially. In all these things, we will likely be grieved and not readily be rejoicing. However, the Christians addressed in this passage rejoice. They understand the blessings that they have, and yet they grieve at the same time. And they rejoice because they remember what the Lord has done to them in Jesus Christ. And this raises, of course, some questions. If we have look at verses 3 through 5, we see all the blessings that the Lord has poured out on his people, that he gives them inheritance, that he gives them hope, that he helps them and guards them on their way. And these blessings are so great. Why then do Christians still experience his suffering like trials in this life? And how should we deal with these trials? Are there still reasons to rejoice? And if so, what are they? Well, in what continues in this letter, in these couple of verses to verse 9, the Holy Spirit, through the writing of Peter, shows us exactly why these trials come to us and why there are reasons to rejoice. And the first one that Peter mentions is that it's only temporary. Peter qualifies trials. Trials have to be put in their right place. They have to be looked at in the right perspective. First of all, the trials are qualified with now for a little while. And two things stands out. First, the now. It means that the trials and sufferings are right now, as opposed to the future we have with the Lord, as opposed to that inheritance that God has prepared for us. These trials will be part of our lives on this earth or in this world where there is brokenness, but it will no longer be part of this life where the Lord has restored creation. And the second matter that stands out here is that these trials are considered to be only for a little while. Now, don't think that Peter here is promising the Christians in Galatia and Cappadocia that, well, tomorrow probably your persecution will be done. Or that in a couple months from now, there will be zero trials for you. No. Persecution and trials will remain part of this life. And some of us might even have trials that will remain with us for the rest of our lives. The timeline used here is not that of now, as opposed to a little later, but is of now comparing this life on earth with an eternity of blessedness and of glory 
with an eternal life that awaits us. And then, yes, Peter says, life here on earth is short. It's a little while when compared to eternity. And when you put it in that perspective, you see that the comparison is almost unfair. We have the little life, the little while of suffering and of trials compared to an eternity of blessing and of glory. How can you compare the two? And Peter offers a second qualifier as well. And he says that it, these trials are to them if necessary. Now the phrase may seem a little bit odd in the context. And there are other translations that translate it differently, but the ESV has if necessary. And the main question is, where do we put the emphasis on these two words? If we stress the if, if necessary, it might seem that the trials might or might not happen in this life. As if hypothetically you could go through life and you might not suffer, but you may also might have to, depending on the situation. But this doubt doesn't seem to agree with the rest of the letter where suffering and trial are considered almost certain. So perhaps it's better to put the emphasis on the necessary. And that's what Peter is getting at. If necessary. In that case, the main message is that these trials are, are not up to chance or up to fate. Those who suffer trials do not do so because they're unlucky or at the wrong time or wrong place at the wrong time. All these things happen to them out of necessity, according to God's will. He is behind all this. And Peter repeats this again also in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, where he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God is in control even during trials. They only come to us because he thinks it is necessary for us. And so we can look at verse 6 and we can say that Peter still continues this theme of rejoicing and of, and of drawing out the blessings that are in Jesus Christ. And the tone has been set in the first couple of verses. God must be praised for what he has done. And still, the verses we are dealing with this afternoon make no, do not hesitate or deny the fact that much of this life can cause us grief and can make us to grieve. The, letter, the readers of this letter rejoice, and they really rejoice, and they grieve at the same time. And we might have the tendency to think that it's either one or the other. That's not the case. Suffering and trials do cause us grief. We're not supposed to deny that. Because these sufferings are not good in and of themselves. Persecution, illnesses, and death were never meant to be part of life as God intended it and as he created it. And therefore, we do not have to try to make them something good or to force ourselves to never grieve. Because then we're making these trials to be something that they're not. But we do qualify our grief and these trials by putting them in the right perspective by comparing them to eternity and to the life that we have now. The joy is still there in the fact that we have hope and that we trust in the Lord. And this suffering is for a little while, as long as we live on this earth, but no longer after that. And these trials, though painful, are to be used. Even these trials are to be used in God's plan. And this brings us to our second point, that trials do refine our faith. So if we say that trials 
are then necessary and they do are, are sent by God, then why does he send them? Could it be that he has a purpose somehow? And that is the point that Peter makes in the following verses. Trials are according to the will of God because they will eventually result in praise, glory, and honor. And the way that in which this happens is compared by Peter or is similar to the refining of gold. For it says that they have now been grieved by various trials, in verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now why is Peter making this comparison between the suffering and the trials and the gold, or the testing of gold? What does this mean? Well, there are a number of things that Peter teaches us. And first, the main point is that the comparison is that tested faith is far more valuable than anything, than even tested gold, which we consider is valuable. It says that gold, even though it is tested by fire, will eventually perish. However, tested faith will not perish. It will remain and even result in the end in glory, praise, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The point is then, if you want to hold on to something that's precious, then hold on to faith. We can think of so many people, or so many people and so many instances in this world today where people are holding on to gold and wealth and money to hold on to something that they think is precious, that we attach value to, hoping that it will keep them safe or that they give them some guarantee. They invest in the material goods of this world, but it can all be taken away, and it all has to be left to this life alone. It is left at the end of our lives. Its value is only in the here and now, whereas faith has value for eternity, and it cannot be taken away from you because it's your own. And that's the first point. The second is that fire is used to test gold. Just as fire does not destroy gold, but refines it and makes it more pure, so also trials will not destroy our faith, but strengthen it, purify it. Trials might seem in this life to want to break us down, to bring us down, or to demolish our faith. It will seem as if they will crush us, or they might seem a hurdle that we can never get over in this life. But that is not what fire does to gold. The gold will remain and even be tested, even though it goes through the fire. The idea is that gold, of course, is precious, but only real, refined gold is precious. The gold that comes from the mines is not the gold that you likely have on your finger or in any other kind of piece of jewelry. From the mines to that gold ornament, there's a long process. Gold ore, as it comes from the mines, will have a lot of other materials and impurities mixed with it. So it needs to be melted and purified. Otherwise, it's still not really precious and useful. It's just oil or ore and not good for anything yet. It needs to be tested by fire so that the real precious gold remains and that can be used for all kinds of things. And so faith is tested by trials so that its genuineness is shown. All that is not part of faith will then be removed and will not make it through the trials. And we can just think of the Old Testament examples of this kind of testing. We have to think of the kinds of trials that the Old Testament saints or patriarchs had to go through. When we all 
most likely know the story of the testing of Abraham, who had to sacrifice his son Isaac. Here Abraham had his son Isaac, a promise from the Lord, someone who he depended on, a gift. All his future was tied to this one son. But was he supposed to depend on him, on this son? No, the Lord tested his faith by asking Abraham to also sacrifice his one thing, his security for the future, to show the genuineness of his faith. It was in this trial that the Lord, and even we ourselves, can see the genuineness of the faith of Abraham, as Abraham obeyed in faith and was ready to even sacrifice his son Isaac. And Abraham's faith was shown to be true and precious. And this testing has a final goal. And in the end, our passage says that the genuineness of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we know that gold, once it is purified, is far more valuable and useful than when it first comes from the mines. But gold ore that has been mined, or, or unrefined faith for that matter, this gold and faith cannot refine themselves. Gold is refined by the craftsman who uses fire or crucibles and molds to make it into something precious. And so, fine gold is the work of a craftsman. And so also, when the genuineness of faith is shown, there will be praise, honor, and glory for the craftsman, our God and Lord. He has given us faith through trials and fire, and he refines our faith. He burns away that which does not belong and that which is not valuable so that the valuable faith remains. And if we could wonder if God could really do this, if he could bring us through trials to, in the end, produce or to make us there to be praise, honor, and glory, we only have to look at the example or the life of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because his life also shows a pattern of trials leading to perseverance and ultimately praise for the Lord. For Christ was obedient through his, to his Father throughout his life, so that his Father might receive all the praise and glory and honor. He remained faithful even to the plan of his Father. And most of us know what this all entailed. The Lord had planned that his Son would suffer. That he would suffer throughout his life here on earth. That he would suffer injustice, abandonment, cruel and painful blows during his trial, and he eventually would even be crucified. Yet Christ remained obedient to his Father throughout his whole life. And that took faith. Looking at the plan of salvation from our perspective, once we have seen the victory of the cross, it's easy to say, yes, the cross is the way to glory and honor and to victory. But the victory was not there when Christ went to the cross. In fact, the circumstances made it seem as if perhaps victory was far away. For we see Christ who's suffering, the Son of God who has all power, tied, nailed to a cross. How could that result in victory? And therefore Christ had to have faith in his Father's plan as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And his obedience resulted in praise and glory for God who saved his people through his son on the cross. That his plan, God's plan of redemption is the way to salvation for all who believe. And in, in turn, at the end, 
His son also received life and glory and praise from his father as he was faithful and obedient throughout his life. And so that also in Christ's life, we see that the will of the father is good and will result in glory and honor and praise. He's the craftsman who knows how to refine the gold. And sometimes that may include fire. But these fire and these trials are part of his plan. We might not be able to exactly know or explain why these things happen. But when we see them, we can at least know that the craftsman is at work. We most likely do not have the right perspective, perhaps, while we're in the midst of trials. But perhaps we see it afterwards, how he is at work. But even then, perhaps we go through life and we don't know how the craftsman was at work in our lives. And yet we trust him by faith. That is why we need faith in the plan of the Lord. We need to have faith that he is the craftsman, making sure that these trials do have a purpose. And he will make sure that this ore will become refined gold. Because the gold is precious in his sight. And so let us then also look at our faith as it is being refined, perhaps, as more valuable than any gold on this earth, because God is busy refining that which he deems valuable. It is in faith that we see that even this trials in this life might just serve a purpose, or do serve a purpose. It is in faith that we walk with the Lord through trials and suffering. And this faith that we have in the Lord cannot be taken away. That we walk in faith to obtain, indeed, the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That is our hope. And in faith, we know that the hope of faith shall not deceive us, even if the circumstances seem otherwise. This brings us to the third point, that the hope of faith shall not deceive us. For there is yet another reason why we can rejoice, even though we face trials. And the last verses of our text shows that we walk by faith and not by what we see or by sight. For it says there, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We, as believers, don't focus on the things we see, but on the things we believe. And the point here made in this text can be applied to all. I mean, none of us here this afternoon likely have seen Christ, have seen him on earth. They can't say that, yes, we have seen him this or this day, today or even yesterday. We don't see him now. Our faith, therefore, is not about what we see with our eyes. Because by faith, for faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, which is Hebrews 1 verse, or 11 verse 1. We haven't seen Jesus Christ, and yet we know or believe in him as our Savior. And so, and how do we know this? Our faith makes us certain of this. It's not our eyes, it's our faith. And because we have faith, we know that what we see around us in this world or in this life is not all that actually is. That there is far more that goes on besides what we can see. There is a lot more in this life that we do not see with our eyes, but that we do see in faith. 
And that is why faith is also more precious than gold. And we can just think of this, how it is explained in Hebrews 11. This whole chapter just shows that what people saw when they went in faith. It is repeated again and again. He mentions the Old Testament saints again. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all followed the Lord in faith. They had the promises of the Lord that they would be given the land of Canaan. But did they ever see it as their, that it actually became their home and their land? No. They were always foreigners. They were always going on, living in tents, moving around, because there was no real place was actually their home. Their whole life, they had to walk by faith, believing the promises of God, and looking at this land and saying, yes, God has promised it to us. And until these promises were fulfilled, they listened to the Lord and they followed him to that land. Wherever he sent them, through trials, deserts, led far away from their homes, they went on in faith, trusting that the Lord would fulfill his promises to them. They went where the Lord led them, not because it always looked like the best path, but but because they walked in the hope of faith. By faith they went looking on, looking not at the trials that were before them, but they looked to the promises of God, that he was their God and that he was leading them to their inheritance. And we can perhaps face some similar challenges today. No, we don't. We're not like Abraham and Isaac that God has pointed us to a land that we will possess and that we don't see our beginning with yet. But we do have to ask ourselves, what do we see in our own lives and in the world around us? Do we just focus on what our eyes see or do we walk by faith? And do we by faith then focus on the promises that God has given to us all? Do we make our daily decisions based on the fact that we have these promises of God, that we are children of God, and that we are people of God? Does that influence how we think or what we do or how we plan our lives? Do we perhaps go back to the promises God has given us at his baptism when he put his seal on us that yes, indeed, we are his children? And does it change the way we live our lives, especially when they are trials? Are we defined by our baptism and who we are in Jesus Christ? Or are we defined by the sin that we still struggle with? which is real? Or what the, are, are we defined by what the world says about who we are or what we are? Who or what are we defined by? By what we see or what we believe? Because faith looks at God's promises and says, this is real. These things are real regardless of what happens in the world or in our lives. Because God has given us these promises. And so we believe His word. And it's because we believe his word and his promises that we can still rejoice in whatever happens. Because God is leading us to an inheritance that is cause for rejoicing. Because we know him as our father. It's also a cause for rejoicing. We have the hope of the salvation of our souls, as is mentioned in our text. The salvation we are obtaining. And at the same time, already now, we have been born again, and already have a foretaste of the life that we will have with the Lord. For if we even must look at what Peter mentions, that he mentions that though 
We do not now see him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What kind of joy is that? Well, it's described as inexpressible and filled with glory. This is not kind of ordinary joy. It has the qualities of a heavenly joy, a God-given joy. This is the joy that has a foretaste of the glorious life that is to come. And it's, of course, interesting that Peter calls it inexpressible. What kind of joy is that? It's one that we can't give words to. And yet I think Peter does what we all understand what Peter is getting at. We already have this joy or this peace that is inexpressible. It is joy that makes us speechless or perhaps at a loss of words and holds on to God's promises. It is exactly that kind of joy or peace or that contentment that the Lord gives us perhaps in difficult circumstances and perhaps you have experienced this. For those that are walking by, those that are just in the, earth, in the world, it doesn't make sense that you would be joyful or at peace when someone dear to you is about to enter an operation room. Or it doesn't make sense that you would be joyful and able to sing God's praises when the end of life is near. But for those who walk in faith, it makes sense because you look with faith to the things that are to come and the promises of God. And so for those who walk by faith, there are trials And yet there is this inexpressible joy of knowing Jesus Christ that can go along with it. It is a joy that's not affected by our circumstances, the things we see, but is rooted in something that is far, that is consistent, constant, our faith in God's promises. And that is why Peter can call it just a a joy that is filled with glory and inexpressible. But then we have to ask ourselves, what do we do? Do we walk by faith or do we walk by sight? Do we focus on what we see now? Or do we believe indeed that even though we don't see Jesus Christ, he is our savior? And the fact is that we naturally walk by sight. We probably do that every day. We pay attention to the things we can see because those are the things that we really think are real. We see and encounter real suffering or real struggles with sin. And we feel real grief. But is this all that we see? Or is there far more to this life? And is this all that is real? Or are God's promises just as real for us? Is it all about what we can see with our eyes? Or also about what we can see in faith? And if we consider these things we can understand that those who walk by faith can even rejoice when experiencing trials. These trials are not going to last. They are temporary. And they're only on their way to a final destination and on their way to a, a creation that will be completely restored where, restored where there is no suffering. And the trials we face on the way will be, by God's grace, refine our faith so that it will be pure and true and valuable even at the end. And these trials draw us closer to God to the Lord, seeking him more and more in faith as we follow Christ. And as we go through this life, we realize that it's not about what we see, but what we see in faith. Trials will then be understood to be God, not just trials, but God's tool for refining our faith. So that, and it's by faith that even though we don't see Jesus Christ right now, we still can believe in him and know that he is our savior. And so, by faith, we also 
believe in God's promises, even though they lead us through deserts and perhaps trials. It's all because we believe that God's word is true and his promises are true. The hope of faith will not deceive us. So believe also in Jesus Christ and walk by faith. Because we have a hope and an inheritance. Love Christ, even though we don't see him. And rejoice in him, even amid the trials of life. Amen. Let us now also sing 